Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. On today's show, Frank Calderwood. Franny's husband and fellow pre-prandial aficionado had been dead almost three years now, but Franny maintained a steady dialogue. Photos of the man populated various rooms of the largish house they once shared. Kitchen uh, Frank, who she was chatting to now, in his frame atop the microwave, was in his 30s, armed with barbecue tongs, dressed in an apron festooned with pendulous breasts. Laundry Frank was a man in his 50s, hair thinning and brown legs stretched out on a sun lounge, his sleeping face covered by, covered by a delicately placed pair of women's underpants. Bedroom Frank was a pensive young chap. He gazed prettily through the bedroom of a Tuscan pensione, pen in mouth, well-thumbed travel guide on the table beside him. There was no photo Frank in the backyard where Franny loved to potter. Out there she chatted to the open air. That's an excerpt from Jackie Byron's Happy Hour. The book, a wryly humorous dramedy, introduces us to Franny Calderwood, a 65-year-old artist and author who has retreated from life after the death of her beloved Frank, batting away well-meaning friends and relatives so she can spend her days in boozy decadence, creating art and sharing wisecrack with frames, framed pictures of her late husband. When a chance encounter leads her to strike up a friendship with her neighbour's teenage daughter and eight-year-old son, Franny's carefully guarded solitude is disrupted and the life she has kept at bay threatens to come flooding back in. Jackie Byron's Happy Hour is an engaging dramedy brimming with wry humour as she navigates grief, loss and, of course, friendship. Jackie joins me now to talk about her book and the crafts behind it. Jackie, welcome to Backstory. Hello, Mel. Thanks for having me, and hello, listeners. Now, I really was. Uh, this this is one of those books that it kind of really uh, revels in a sort of uh, wry sense of humour, as I've discussed in in the opening. Um, it's very engaging. The central character is very much not one to be self pitying. <laughs> she is uh, she is obviously in a situation where she's you know she's keeping grief at bay, but she's doing it on her own terms. I want to talk a little bit about where this character emerged from. This is your first book, and it's certainly certainly kind of come out of the gates with a fully formed voice and sense of, uh, you know, a real energy to your writing. So can you talk a little bit about uh, where Franny, and uh, I have to mention her little dog's whiskey and soda <laughs> came from. <laughs> thank, thank you, Mel. That's very kind. Um, look, to be honest, the the germ of the idea came from something quite different and kind of miserable in that I had, I just was having one of those moments where I just wanted to push the world away and just, you know, turn, I don't know if you've ever had it, but like, we're just, can you just all stop needing me and, and maybe even talking to me for a moment? And then the original idea was, could a woman get in a car and drive away from her life? Just drive away and not come back. Um, 
and with modern technology and everything, it was like that. That's it's just harder and harder to do those sort of stories. Plus, I don't probably have the technical skill. Um, so then I sort of started thinking, well, how, how can you do it at home? Keeping in mind that self-isolating wasn't a thing when I started, um, and so then it was like, how can you remove yourself from the world but stay at home? And then Franny kind of trotted in, and she was um, my original working title. I have made the joke a few times. Was drunken Nana, um, <laughs> and my joke is that I still think it would be a good Hong Kong action movie, which I would like someone to make. But yeah, <laughs> I'm down for drunken Nana as a exactly, Hong Kong exactly. Awesome. I did pitch it to an agent at the very, very beginning and she just looked at me and gave me, like, such massive daggers. I was like, okay, maybe not drunken matter. She yep. just took several steps back out of the room. Yeah. I, look, I mean, I honestly feel like this is one of those things where you, you don't often have uh, characters like uh, Franny in uh, in literature she is she's not a granny she actually is uh, a childless woman who has lived life on her own terms there is a great grief at, at the core of things that I won't get too much into that's something readers can discover for themselves uh, but she is really someone who I guess increasingly does typify a lot of women um, and a lot of women as they age uh, who haven't necessarily lived a life that their parents lived or that anyone else lived and I always appreciate uh, seeing people like that uh, on the page because I am a woman who uh, doesn't have a family and who uh, is a single person living by herself. It's really nice to sort of see these characters given the full energy and especially one as uh, she's kind of approaching a much older age. She's 65 as the book opens. But obviously she's also navigating some really quite heavy stuff. Uh, it's done with a real lightness of touch. And I want to sort of talk about that because you weren't really afraid to go there with um, just injecting as much humour as possible into what is actually quite a sort of moving situation. Well, look, to be honest, Mel, I, I really, I mean, I, I went out wanting to write a funny book, but it, it did get sadder and sadder as I went. And I was like, oh, no, stop, stop, stop. But I think, um, you know, life is sad. You know, it's great as well. But I think Franny's way of dealing with it is often, I mean, the humour is often quite black and some of it is at her own expense and, and a lot of it is, uh, yes, reflected towards others. Um, and that gets into that whole, is she likeable or not? And do characters have to be likeable and all that sort of business? But um, I, think, I think I'd like to think that we are going to start seeing more characters like this because... 65, I'm not going to do the whole, you know, 60 is a new 40 or any of that crap. But, you know, at, at this stage, like 65, but that, that is the very, they're the youngest boomers. And they are used to living a life. Um, and they're not going to, you know, like, like Jane Fonda's in her 80s now. Like, would you call her elderly? Like Chrissy Hines, I think, turned 70 recently. You know, this, it, I think things are going to change in media um, about the kind of women and, and men that we start to see as, as lead characters. But men have always been allowed to have, you know, normal, <laughs> thriving lives as they get older in, in fiction and on TV, but women have normally gone a bit sort of cardigan-y and, you know, fat bummy. Yeah, yeah she's really not um, going, you know, quietly into that good night in any no. sense. <laughs> Quite the opposite. She's sort of really revelling in her, you know, in her artistry, in her aloneness. Um, obviously, there is a great deal of, you know, she's in denial heavily, obviously, um, but she's, mm. at the same time, there's a lot to 
you know, there's a lot that's uh, that's enviable about her life. Obviously, you know, she's a privileged woman. She's someone who has uh, been successful in her life. She's a successful author. She's uh, spiky, funny, urbane, witty, proud, and and caring beneath it all. She's a full yeah. character, and I am. I have to say, I am kind of surprised. Um, really trying to think about central characters like that because more often than not they're liminal characters in books or they're kind of treated as more one-note characters. And I do feel like, you know, it's sort of interesting that the comparisons being made on the cover with um, The Weeknd, uh, which is um, the Charlotte Wood book, which is a really good book. Eleanor Oilifant is completely fine. And of course, Grace and Frankie, we've mentioned Jane Fonda already once in this conversation. And of course, she gets a she gets a mention in this book too, as a kind of touchstone, I guess, for women of that generation. I am heartened to hear that you think that that's going to be a trend now in writing. I, I think, yeah, I think you're already, I mean, you know, every time anyone mentions that Charlotte Wood comparison, I do, I do cringe because... Uh, that that's a bit scary to be compared to her. And also, I think, you know, if you love Charlotte Wood, you may be a little bit disappointed with me. But anyway, it's, you know, it's done now. Um, but um, it, uh, I think, you know, when you have those conversations at the beginning, as I learned getting into publishing, people want to know about comparative titles. And I really did struggle um, because I'm seeing more on the screen at the moment. You know, women are starting to come into their own more on the screen um, and, you know, there was all those fabulous Nancy Meyer sort of films, you know, like Something's Got to Give with um, Diane Keaton and all that sort of thing. But I was struggling to find in books the... Um, uh, may, maybe they are in other cultures and I'm too dumb to have read any of them. But, yeah. Um, but I, I, th- I think it's just going to have to happen because it's happening across, you know, across the board in life. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about, I mean... This book is is a, a book that um, I think anyone can really engage with. It's readable. It's uh, it's really made for a, uh, a page turning read. Even though, you know, everything is set in a you know a quite small uh, environment. Um, I love that you've got this real energy to the writing, and I want to talk about that style of writing. We have all different types of books on this show, and I'm always really excited to look at how different uh, people craft their books. I know, uh, Jackie, that you have had such a range of writing experiences, and I do really want to delve a little bit more into that. But just for the purposes of talking about the style of writing that you've really engaged with, you have had experience both uh, as a kind of editorial writer in journalism, but also uh, quite a long experience in copywriting as well. And I'm always very intrigued by the uh, the evolution of those who who get into that style of writing. Copywriters are, of course, people who do uh, advertising, copy, and content. And I always find that people who do that kind of work just have a really very strong sense of how language works and um, and how to make people kind of you know really engage and and want to sort of turn the page. So can you talk a bit about how that sort of because this is your first book, how that's kind of um, bled over into your writing if it has? Well, I think I think the the key thing about copywriting, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> is that um, while this is my first published book, it is my second manuscript and my first one. I wrote, after years and years of dabbling with writing, I actually sat down and completed a manuscript when I started copywriting because it was the first time where I just had 
like when, when you're because I, I had done a lot of magazine journalism a lot of PR writing too but but lots of magazine journalism in particular and editing magazines and stuff and your your head is full of other people's stories like long form lots of balls in the air when you're doing a mag that sort of stuff when I moved into copywriting all of a sudden it becomes so concise and prescriptive prescriptive like sometimes it's not even you don't even have any how many words you've got to work with it's how many characters and that seemed to unlock this thing in me because I really would go do that work and then and then my mind would be free I think it didn't have all these stories and these voices in it anymore um and that's the impact it had I think more than anything which is, you know, probably not what you expected, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's really, I mean, it's really great to hear because I think, you know, we've talked about this quite a lot in this show that in Australia, especially um, in other uh, English-speaking um, jurisdictions, there might be more opportunity to solely work as uh, someone who writes uh, long-form whether it's long-form non-fiction or, or fiction. But it is a rare writer that has uh, the ability to do that, to just focus on on their long-form writing. More often, people have a kind of portfolio career where they do a lot of different styles. I am intrigued to know how people who are doing other so- sorts of writing jobs find the time and, let's be honest, the inclination <laughs> to oh, do more oh. writing when the writing day is over. What's your secret, Jackie? I can't even speak because it's so traumatic. No. Um, <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks for triggering me I'm so now. sorry. Um, no, you know, I um, really, one of the things is when people are going to roll their eyes, but it's a happy story in terms of if you wait long enough, you can still live out your dreams. Part of it was not working full time anymore, um, pulling back on my days and doing like, four days a week instead of five and that sort of thing and also taking myself away from home sometimes I am not that person that gets up at four o'clock in the morning and works for a couple of hours and then starts the working day and all that sort of stuff that's not me I also find that I um need sort of trenches of time where I can really concentrate so there was so there was a combination really of doing um some less days actually at the day job um often taking myself away for stints where I would just, just for, you know, three days or whatever, which is which is decadent, but, you know, I, I managed to pull it off every now and then. And the other thing is um, heading to the library, which is, I really miss, the thing I'm missing in lockdown amidst seven million things is um, there's something about going to the library and just hunkering down that really gets me working for some reason. Yeah, that's a really interesting one, I guess, um, you know, how you find... I mean, I don't know, how have you gone in lockdown? That's a really... That's one of those questions that I think I ask um, creative people to my... uh, to their horror often Um, but I think there is a real duality to it some writers have really found it a a way to cope Uh, you know famously obviously Zadie Smith wrote an essay that I I have to say I found slightly um, I'm not going to say irritating but just depressing (laughs) where she she talks about how to her writing is something to do and 
um, and she found great solace in that. But I think I, like many others, <laughs> found it enormously difficult to focus yeah. on the creative act when it's almost like, you know, you're, in order to say perfectly still, you have to be um, keeping the little you know, uh, the little legs flapping under the surface. <laughs> How are yeah, you going yeah. with this? Particularly the writing that you really engage with, you know, as you say, the, this particular book has a, a great degree of um, of humour in it as well as loss. But do you find it, it's a kind of an escapist act? Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, there are, there are, there are a couple of answers, though, because I really, uh, you know, I know that I'll be speaking predominantly to an, a Melbourne audience and I watched it happen in Sydney not with any sense of glee or whatever, but with a sense of recognition because when they first went into their bigger lockdown, it was like everything that seems a novelty the first time, the second time around you're like, piss off, you know. <laughs> you look around, is anyone is anyone baking sourdough anymore? No, you don't hear so much about that. Um, and I think there are lots of things like that where initially it was like, oh, really, I'm really going to concentrate on my yoga and I'm going to write, whatever. And then after a while it's like, no, I'm going to stab myself in, my, in the eye with my pencil. Um <laughs> But actually, the first lockdown last year was, initially, I had a massive panic because my household changed and my beautiful mother moved in, um, and I'm just not used to having, you know, people around or whatever, um, and I was trying to work as well, and so then I was like, right, this is, never, I'm never, this is not going to happen, and then I did the um, Australian Society of Authors pitching, um, speed pitching thing. And got interest, and like every journo, all of a sudden I had a deadline. And when I've got a deadline, that, that's all I need in life is a deadline. And then I'll be like, oh, okay. and so then lockdown was pretty good for me last, you know, the, the part of it last year because I was just like, do you want to just crack on and do this? Come on, you know, what's your excuse? So, and it was an amazing escape and distraction from the hideousness. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Jackie, I do want to talk a bit about uh, the fact that uh, you have embarked on writing a book quite late in your career. This is something that I guess, uh, you know, when we talk about the arts, particularly music, uh, it tends to be something that people uh, embark upon quite young. There are many people who have ambitions to write books in their younger years, um, but really don't hit their stride until they're starting to get a little bit older. Um, I want to I want to kind of ask you, firstly, you know, about the challenges of that, but also about what you gain, I guess, from you know, really you know, a life of of other experiences, particularly uh, in your case, uh, other writing experiences, to then you know embark on doing something like a book uh, because I think a lot of people you know I teach writing classes and I get such a range of ages uh, in those classes and, and backgrounds and experiences what is it like to do that um, at an older age but also uh, would you recommend it <laughs> well you know if you don't want to take up knitting it's another option um yeah, look, it's it's interesting to me. Um, it's funny that you correlate music because uh, I think, you know, what one thing that people are not surprised about is someone who becomes much, much better at their instrument as they get older. So you might have a, um, you know, a first chair in a... In a in an orchestra or something, you know, who, who's older because it's taken them a while to be able to command that instrument. And 
I mean, this sounds really wanky, but I think, you know, there is something to be said for hanging back a bit and, you know, working on your craft before you launch into it because writing today especially is so competitive. I mean, and that is, I thought I understood, but once I got published, it was like, oh, my God, there are so many books month after month and and just in Australia, let alone what's coming out, you know, around the world. Um, And I think, you know, if you want to have a chance at it, you've really got to be quite um, confident and and capable with what you're doing because there's so many other very talented people out there. So I I guess, you know, that is one thing. But people are kind of... um, People can be quite um, impatient about wanting to get out and start writing, and I get that too, and there is so much to be said for young, fresh voices. But, um, you know, I, th- I think maybe you can have made a few less mistakes. You can make some of your mistakes before you actually get out and try it in, in public. <laughs> Yeah, and look, it's, it's sort of interesting. I've been reading Dare Centeran, a Black Spirit memoir by Akweke Amezi, and it's, I have to say, um, as well as all the other extraordinary things about that memoir, it is a little bit of, it does expose quite a lot about the publishing industry, particularly in the US, you know, things like trying to get a living wage out of your advance, uh, you know, the idea of like not doing things by the book, not to be punny, um, but really trying to lean into what it is that you want to do as a creative, um, as a creative producer of work. Uh, I just thought it was a, really one of those things where, in order to be a writer, you do have to be quite uh, one-eyed about what you're doing. You have to be really deeply focused and pre- be prepared to sacrifice other things as well. Um, I feel like if you've got the kind of wherewithal of a of you know, having had other careers and maybe having a little bit of, uh, you know, money or resources behind you, it might give you that that opportunity to be able to really sit there and focus on this on this task that's actually quite daunting. Um, look, you know, the thing is I actually have um, – I often have people coming to me now, now sadly, talking about their children to me, but it used to be other writers, but, like, people often, you know – um, grown up, you know, like maybe their kids are sort of 19, 20, 17 and they want to know about making, you know, a living as a, as a writer in Australia and my, you know, it's only my point of view but I mean, A, keeping in mind the quote they always give you is that the average uh, income of an Australian author is $14,000. You can't even buy a Suzuki. Um, and so, you know, I think if you go in thinking that this is all you're going to do, you're on a hiding to nowhere. So it's best to be um, a, a, a jack or jill of quite a few trades. And it's also, that's not a bad thing. It's a wonderful, um, it's a great life, but also it gives you lots of different um, life experience to put into your work. And recently I read an article with, um, uh, you, you You were joking about pronouncing names before, A Little Life, what's her name, Hanya Hanya, the Japanese-American girl. Oh, okay. Anyway. Yes. Put you on the spot. But yeah. A Little Life. Yeah, that was it's um, Hanya Yangahara. There you go. I'll leave it to you. She's still got a day job. She's still got a day job, you know. And it was a really wonderful article because she she's an editor of a New York magazine. Um, and part of me was like, oh, 
<laughs> but part of me was like, okay, that's interesting. And she said, you know, otherwise you can get too introspective and then what do you write about? You know, you can only write about you and your, your experience. I mean, the nice thing about, you know, being older and in lockdown is that at least I've got a whole, um, you know, quite a few decades of um, life experience to tap into that to use as... Um, as material, uh, if you're younger, you need to be out there and living the life and, you know, getting the ideas and hearing the voices and all that sort of stuff. So it must be frustrating at the moment. Yeah, I really think it is. And I think that there, you know, obviously this um, trend uh, in, you know, in media out there of perhaps not <laughs> paying writers or not paying them as well as they should be paid is also quite a thing I always say to my students you've really got to consider what benefit there is in it for you to have your story front of house it's wonderful um, to have writers with uh, their particular perspectives or you know to really uh, raise up people whose voices haven't been heard very much but it is meaningless when you're doing that um, and then essentially exploiting them financially Um, so that's you know, that's something that I do feel quite strongly about that um, there is, you know, there's a lot of content out there, but the um, the money being made from that, not as much of it is filtered filtered through to the creators of that content and um, particularly when you consider if they're um, boosting the voices of minority um, communities, I feel like that is when it becomes quite worrying. Um, but, yes, that's certainly something that I think... Uh, those of us who are lucky enough to have careers in earlier generations definitely have an edge over things. So I'm always always thinking about maybe really, you know, talking talking about these things, making them known is really an important part of, oh, so of important. sharing yeah. that. The romance about writing really makes me nervous. You know, when I'm when I am looking, I believe me, Mel, I have sat through many a different class. You know. Short ones, week ones, weekend nights, you know, uh, whole nine months ones, all that sort of stuff, uh, and watch the different people come through. And there was a lot of older, whiter heads and that sort of stuff, but, but often younger people too and now more and more. And it's like, guys, you've got to have your side hustles. You've got to be ready to go in, you know. And also, is your writing a hobby or or is it a career? Because there's nothing wrong with it being a hobby. It's another thing that intrigues me about writing you know if you're a knitter you don't expect to be a competitive knitter or you know mm. in a world show but some for some reason there is a thing about writing where people are like I've got to be published or people start asking you are you going to be published it's like just write because you really love it because if you want to do it for other reasons you need to think about it but it is and one of those plans Dan yeah absolutely it is one of those questions though that I feel writers should not be afraid to ask uh, what you're being paid why you're being paid so little those kinds of things I think if more people make that public or even you yeah. know to consider that 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 this is a um, presumptive that in fact writing is considered to be a hobby rather than a profession, and yet it is a business. So I think these things, I think the more we talk about them, uh, it's hard to put that emphasis just on the creator in a way. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. It does end up being our problem. <laughs> so It does because, yeah. you know, I remember um, my husband saying to me, you know, we've got quite a few friends at Amusos, and, you know, he was saying, you know, and, like, a mate who's been in bands for 30 years, it was 100 bucks a man for a live gig, 
25 years ago and it still is now. Mm. And, you know, Jay said to me, the thing is they know that you do it for free anyway. You know, you do it anyway because you love it. And that is one of the traps with the arts, you know. Yeah, I would do it because I love it. But in this particular instance, you know, you're all making uh, an industry out of it and making money that's bringing a lot of joy to people. I wouldn't mind a few bucks, would it kill you? You know? Um, Absolutely. But, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky area and we're not alone in terms of the arts, you know. Before we uh, finish up this interview, Jackie, I am, I've been asked <laughs> to interrogate you on uh, two of your characters that gamble throughout this book, and that is whiskey and soda. Not the drink, although there are plenty of drinks in this book. Uh, our central, char- central character, Franny, is, a, is not afraid to imbibe, um, but there are these two adorable dogs, and uh, my friend wants to know why can why a can terrier? Um, why why is that uh, depicted on the cover? I do not know that that is the breed of dog, but that is what I've been asked. And and also, I have to say, I really love that all of the little dinkuses, the little, um, you know, spaces between sections are filled with a little dog bone. So for the doggy lovers, yes. this is definitely a nice little addition. <laughs> Look, Alan and Amun did a great job, I think, with the with the cover and the design. The the little bones were a um, an unexpected um, addition, and in fact, Dimmix did um, lapel pins with the with the little Canteria pissing because there is the Canteria is pissing on the front of the cover too, which you know was uh, it already got um, debated in a group um, on 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 Facebook, which was really funny because someone. Uh, these were people I didn't know, you know, and don't look at your reviews and all that sort of stuff is all great <laughs> advice. But someone was saying, why would you have a cover with a, with a dog pissing on it? I would never pick up a book like that. And then someone, and then people piled on, including one of my relatives from Ireland. That's nice. Um, but, um, yeah, so, so it, whiskey is a can, which is, if you don't know, that is the breed of Toto from The Wizard of Oz. So they are similar to a Westie. A Westies are bred from cans. Um, and then soda is a um, golden retriever, and and look, I I have a dog, I have a can terry called can terry called whiskey. Um, my my complete coincidence. Girl. She's looking over at me no, now because I keep mentioning her name, but she's a girl. Uh, the one in the book is a boy to protect my dog's privacy. Um, but I think you know, even in lockdown now, I mean, God, how many dogs are out there now? People are really understood the value of a dog, and pets, pets fully, uh, you know, generally. Um, so I think, you know, I have had a good response to that because, you know, in a lot of people's lives, whether they're single, child-free, you know, whatever, um, the pets play a big part in, in the life and in, and in your family, and that family might be you and that dog. Um, and I think, you know, I, it's a, I think it's a nice acknowledgement of that. It's a it's true for me. It's a genuine experience for myself too. Um, yeah, and um, but can terriers? I mean, terriers full stop have a lot of personality, yes. and you know that's good in a book. Well, I uh, I definitely finished up this book with uh, with my Jack Russell um, Chihuahua cross. <gasps> 15-year-old Jack, Jack Russell Cross trying to stick her head in front of it. So um, thank you. I, I very much enjoyed that part. And uh, thank you so much, Jackie, for, for joining me for so so much of my show today. It was a delight to be able to speak with you. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I, I, I've been listening to Triple R for like over 35 years. I wor- worked out this morning when I was walking, um, which is quite disgusting to think about. But, um, yeah, so <laughs> I love this 
this station and, you know, go subscribers. Yeah, and thanks for having me on. Thank you so much, Jackie. That was uh, Jackie Byron uh, who joined me to talk about her debut novel, Happy Hour, out now through Alan and Unwen. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.